Welcome to the Com Surgery Podcast Edition, hosted by Christine Townsend. Okay, we'll get started. Uh, we're just on the nose there. So welcome, everybody, and thank you so much uh, for joining us. I know we've got a wonderful, wonderful panel. I'm very, very excited that we can get to spend time with these three amazing people. And basically what they don't know between them isn't worth knowing. So you're in the right place. Um, and firstly, I just want to very quickly, it's my show, I can do what I want, say thank you so much to all of those who have uh, bought my book. Um, I didn't expect it to be in the hundreds already, so that's pretty cool. My mum certainly didn't buy all of them. Um, so thank you for that. Thank you for those who have also joined our PIO Toolkit community. If you have not yet joined, please join us there. We've got so many amazing resources. So that's me. And I'm going to leave it to everyone else now to do what they do best. So I'm going to introduce um, Alison Hudson, Chris Cavelli, Joanne Sweeney. Alison, would you like to tell us who you are, what you do, and where in the world are you? Sure, sure. So thank you for having us um, on the show today. We really appreciate that. Um, I work for Houston Police Department. So in hot Houston, Texas, where it's about 103 right now, and we haven't had rain in over 40 something days. So um, and we're on our water conservation. But I am a division manager in the Community Affairs Office. So um, video production, photo lab, uh, media relations, obviously RPOs, um, social media, website and IT. Thank you very much, Alison. Chris, tell us who you are, what you do, and where you are. Good afternoon to most. Uh, my name is Chris Cavelli. I'm the public information officer for the Lake County Sheriff's Office in Illinois. Uh, it's the most northeastern county in Illinois, uh, just north of the city of Chicago. Uh, so I do that in a number of other activities at the Sheriff's Office here. And uh, Allison, I can say, keep your warm weather to the south. It's like 98 degrees here, and we're just not oh. capable of handling that. You know. Yeah, well, in Austin, Texas, it's the same for us as well. So, yeah, we'll, we'll swap. Um, but I'm sure someone who's a bit more chilly, last by no means least, Joanne Sweeney. Who are you? What do you do? And where are you? Thank you for having me. My name is Joanne Sweeney, and I'm the founder of Public Sector Marketing Institute. I'm on the west coast of Ireland in Galway, next stop New York. And it is much chillier here, and it is grey, and we haven't had much of a summer um, but I guess we don't have the extremes, but thrilled to be here. And I work in communications, but I specialize in digital comms for government and public sector. And you're also an author. Yes, I am. Congratulations on your book. And there's mine early plug. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. We're going to put the link in for it anyway. You've all got, you've all got space to tell us what you do and everything. So um, we're going to get started. And I'm, I'm really pleased to say we actually had some questions uh, come in already. But just as a reminder for everyone, this is an open session. You can put your questions in throughout the chat. So if anything kind of piques your interest as we go along, just ask us those questions. But um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off uh, with Chris, actually. Um, we would love to know what tip do you have because you you work in critical instance I'm sure quite a lot um, what tip do you have for other PIOs when facing sort of dozens of television cameras for an ongoing critical incident well I would say the number one thing is being open and honest uh, if it's a critical incident people are most concerned about their safety and well-being and the safety of everybody that they care about uh, so time is of the essence in getting information out. It is really important. We push whatever information that we have that can prevent somebody from being injured or killed out right away. 
um, during a critical incident, as we know, things can change quick. Uh, a fact as we know it right this second might be a little different four hours from now or two days from now. And it's always okay to correct something later on that maybe we didn't have 100% right at first in the because we're giving up that 100% certainty in everything uh, for quick information. So framing that, letting people know we're giving it to you as we receive it, uh, and we'll clear up any any inconsistencies, inaccuracies later. But just being open, transparent, and telling the story honestly, uh, that always puts me at ease when I'm in front of cameras. Mm -hmm. And have you got any practical tips? Because I know how awful it is that first moment when you step in front of cameras and you don't expect them or like it scared the life out of me the first time it happened deer in headlights um what's a practical tip for like overcoming that moment of sheer fear well the, i would say the biggest thing that kind of calmed my nerves right away and, and you're everyone is going to have nerves the first time they're stepping in front of cameras it's it takes a long time before you start getting over that and it just becomes second nature to go out and and talk to a singular reporter or couple dozen reporters. It does get easier with time and experience. But, uh, you know, for the first few times, again, just being honest, knowing that you've got nothing to hide. And if there's information that you can't reveal because it can negatively impact an investigation or apprehension efforts, just framing the answer in response that, hey, I do have that information, but it's not something I can release just at this time because of X, Y, Z. And as long as you can do that and you're telling the story honestly, there's nothing to worry about because you have nothing to hide. Absolutely. And I guess it comes down to preparation um, as well. And um, which kind of leads me to Alison. Um, I wanted to ask you what, what training, um, if any of you taken, that you feel has prepared you for this kind of situation in a crisis? Oh, yes, absolutely. So there's a wealth of training out there for POs. It's not like it was 20 years ago where we didn't have a lot of training, but FEMA offers some training. But what I will say is it's nice to have those, you know, training opportunities. But until you get that real world experience, um, that's what kind of puts your training into practice. And so while we have the textbook training type of training um, and sitting in the classroom, it's also important to actually get that training. So shadow other PIOs. When I was a young PIO, that's what I did. I shadowed seasoned PIOs and giving, you know, having that wealth of information available. So that real world experience combined with that textbook and then never stop. You can always learn, even, you know, been in the business 17 years, but I still want to learn from others. And you got to kind of leave your ego out of it so that you can learn because we never stop learning until we die. So that real world experience in a textbook, it has to be simultaneous. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, I think, um, with everything you said there. And I, having an open mind to, to taking learning from mistakes as well is, uh, well, that's what I've made so many that I, I should be like a scholar on mistake making. But um, Joanne, I mean, we've talked about in person here, how you're preparing, how you deal with things. What about online? Because that's your your niche and you know what you're doing when it comes to online crisis. And you were a journalist as well. So what what advice would you give in terms of handling handling a crisis because it just happens like that doesn't it absolutely and the speed of which that crisis can escalate online does not buy you enough time and the voice of the citizen has never been louder because they can drive the narrative online particularly on social networks what's really important is to get out ahead of the story and i just uh, echo what, what Chris has already said, being open, being authentic, being truthful. And another great tip is lean into the comments because the the questions, the perceptions, the fears, the mistruths, the disinformation, 
can be in the comments and often comms pros are afraid of the comments because of the critique but you have to lean into them and you've got to take out what has been said and that is a great wealth of information to prepare you then for traditional media interviews and on that point leverage the journalistic contacts that you have because they work really closely in times of crisis uh, with police forces and blue light workers and they're there to support you and to get that information out in real time so yeah couple of quick tips get ahead of the story leverage mainstream media and lean into the comments and see what people believe to be true yeah some really good um points there actually and i think you you touch upon narrative i mean it's such a, a big thing isn't it making sure that everyone is in control of the narrative and and it's important to keep that in mind but that's something that goes on all the time isn't it and you you make a really good point about the more traditional media and social they have to work together they can't they can't stand alone um, in, you know, from each other, I would say. So um, thank you very much for answering those questions. I've got more. So we're going to have to kind of rattle through things, I, I think. And we're getting some really good um, tips in the chat as well from other PIOs. So be sure to um, take a look at everyone else's advice. But um, I've got some questions more around um, style and language. And that's that's also a big part of narrative is getting that right. So um is uh, Brianne Lorenz wants to know, she's in uh, Venice, Florida. She wants to know about, um, I'm going to start with Chris on this one, and but I'll, you can all chip in. Um, what would you say is the key to like cutting out unnecessary words and in like press releases, for example? And have you got any tips and tricks for not giving out timelines or order of events? Um, and then Joanne, actually, I'd like to hear from you after these guys from a journalist point of view. So Chris, what do you think? Yeah, being concise in a written release is really important. As we all know, the journalists that are covering us, they want to know what the news says uh, in seconds, and get. And that's why the inverted pyramid we've we've all heard about it, read about it, uh, discussed it in trainings works really well. Uh, what's the lead of the story? That should always be at the top. Uh, body should contain just that: the body, the factual information, and then close it out with a call to action or what your organization is doing to handle the situation. Um, but you know, my feeling, my theory is I try to keep press releases under a page uh, always. And if it goes beyond that, there's a lot that just gets lost in translation. And if it's going to be, you know, two pages or more, we need to start thinking about uh, maybe we need to call a press conference to be able to get our message out concisely um, and frame it properly with proper context. As far as timelines go, I, I I guess I would need a little know a little bit more information on that. I mean, generally, um, we won't box ourselves in to say exact times of anything unless it's it's super relevant or there's a reason to. We'll approximate, but I mean, we will give uh, we'll put it in context as far as how this happens systematically, um, and I think that helps people to understand. If you do have some frame of context when it comes to timeline, but you know. Uh, Always be cautious, written release, going in front of a camera, talking one-on-one uh, -on -one to the news media with boxing yourself into being precisely exact uh, when it comes to timing. How about you, Anson? What, what's what's your advice on that? Yeah, so I think timelines are important um, because, but you also want to make sure that they're accurate. You don't want to get up there and you're not sure about the timeline. I think timelines give people the information that they need so that they can do what they need to do. Um, prime example, I always kind of push, we had a case the other day, happened in the middle of the day, um, and it was a shooting, but it was drug related. 
And we're like, chief, say that because we don't want, you know, Susie Q that's going to the grocery store thinking if she visits the store that she's in trouble. But we wanted to focus that it was drug related and give the timeline and show that other people were not involved. Like the stores that were in the surrounding area were not involved. They were not impacted, those type of things. So I think timeline is important. And to kind of Chris's point, the inverted pyramid, I mean, that is something that is just embedded in us as journalists. But also, you know, because um, we tell our lieutenants and our commanders who are required to take these PIO courses as well um, so we can help them public speak. Because we always tell them, you know, who, what, when, where, why, and how. If you don't know where to start, write that on your paper. And I'm going to scenes where they're like, let me start off, y'all. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And that helps you at the basic. And it helps you to communicate on that third grade language that we need to get out because we can't assume that everybody has a collegiate education or will understand some of those terms. The other thing is when you're incorporating a timeline, make sure that you are not using law enforcement or your, your agency-specific um, kind of jargon. We want to make sure that we're reaching people. So you have to kind of go back and you have to check that and make sure, but you always want to start with your most information. And if you have to, you know, recreate it, that's what you need to do, but you want to make sure um, that, that you give the timeline that's important. And also to Chris's point, you know, if the, if the press release is over a page, that is when, you know, we need to have a press conference. So we need to mm -hmm. do something extra. The one thing I like to do as well is to, um, to scout social media, to see what the chatter is about a certain type of thing, because normally the media will cover it first, obviously, because they're running beat to beat, especially here in Houston, where if we have a scene, it's, you know, 10, 12 outlets already there. Um, and they will push out some stories so we can read under those comments to determine, what we need to address in our press release as well. Fantastic. That's great strategic points made throughout. Thank you, Alison. And um, I think that it is important to that, those, you know, who, what, where, when, why, and how. Um, we do have some templates on our site, actually, that would help that um, for anyone who's never written a press release just to go through those things. And that's something I used to do a lot of. Um, I've, can I, I'm going to add, but I'm also going to make sure Joan comes in on this. But one thing I would add um, from my years in policing is do not use police speak. And uh, my tip would be I would ring up my grandma and I'd say, I'm going to read this to you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Nine times out of 10, she'd say, no, nah, I've got a clue rewrite it if your grandma can't read it and understand what you're saying you shouldn't be putting it out there so that's find your person who has no idea what you're doing and thinks you work with computers um john do you want to um give us your take on it well you, you already took mine i was going to say read out what you've written i used to be a broadcast journalist and when you actually read what you write you will then understand that there's too much flowery language too many descriptive words you want to get straight to the point and just to the point about sharing enough information to get into the news, remember, it's likely that these journalists are going to follow up. So you've got to leave something back for that Q&A, those media pieces on air um, or to print journalists. So the press release is a tool to get you the attention of the media. You then probably will have follow-up interviews that you can um, add more information. And on that, actually, um, Brianne sort of followed up to ask if there are any tips for giving just enough, but not giving away too much if it's like a pending investigation. Where where do you set that? I mean, I've got some thoughts on it, but I'll let you guys say, um, Alison, you look like you're... Well, I think it depends on the situation. Um, if it's, you know, an investigation that is involving several different 
units within your department or something, obviously you need to check with them and make sure that you're not giving out um, information. But what we like to do before we get briefings on scene or whether we write something is we get with, you know, the lead detector or whoever the lead is. Um, and sometimes we have meetings before we push stuff out and say, okay, if we say this, will this harm your investigation? Um, you have to check with the subject matter experts on who's working that case before you can release information. That is the big part, that communication key is, is part, you know, we can be on a scene. I'm still going to wait to get that information from whoever is lead on that scene. And then following up, because most of the times we'll have a supplement press release after the, the, the soundbite on the scene for the next day, we still check with whoever has taken over that investigation before we send something out. Is there anything that has happened overnight or in the next couple or the last couple hours that we don't need to push out? I think that's the most important piece is you have to communicate uh, with your investigators and it should not be the first time that you're introducing yourself to them um, to get that information because they're not going to be trustworthy because their job is to hold information to the chest and they don't want to release that. So you have to, in that 95% time of your, of your job is getting to know them so that when you do ask for the information that they're comfortable with you. Yeah, absolutely. Really good point, mate. Getting your internal co-workers to trust you as well as the media, as well as the public. It's a it's a master masterful art, I must say. Um, I need to move on to our other questions. And Patrick, I will get to yours um, shortly, but we have some more here and we're kind of staying on topic a little bit. Um, Eric uh, from Idaho Falls has a question around style guides. So I'm big on them, but I know some people just can't bear them, um, but that I, I find them to be important. But he's saying that they, you know, many people are struggling to follow their style guide. So what advice do you have? And I'll, I'll stay with you, Alison, on this one, um, if you don't mind, um, to encourage others to understand the importance of a style guide. Yeah. So um, that's actually like a really, that's, that's, I think that's the number one gripe for, from everybody is to get people to follow that style guide. Um, so kind of for us is we, we push it around a little bit, but we also make little cheat sheets for, um, our executive team. So the chief has it in his pocket that if he's going to, you know, put out something that we, we know what it is. So letting them know that just like we have policies and procedures in place, we want to follow our style guide as well because it helps our media partners. It helps everyone else. Um, and it just makes things a lot easier. So we actually um, have done some training um, with that to let them know why it's the same thing, who, what, when, where, why, how, this is why we do it. This is what it looks like. And this is the importance of it. Thank you. Joanne, do you, have you had any experience with people pushing back against them? I'm sure with all your clients. Yeah, and I have a, a simple mantra that I share, and it's everything is academic until you put it into practice. So a style guide is theoretical, and it's a document, and it sits on a server somewhere. But until you put it into practice, it's absolutely useless, and you have to take ownership and accountability. And after you repeat it, it becomes muscle memory, and then you don't need it because it's intuitive to you. So just commit to the style guide at the outset and make your life easier in the long run. And can you, I, I mean, I know the answer to this, but can you tell me why it is important from an agency perspective to have a style guide? Well, because you need that universal tone of voice. You need that universal presentation that we know what we're doing, that we are in control and that you can trust us. And all of those little nuances build together to create that public perception and while it doesn't seem important, 
I always say in communications, it's the small things that are the big things. Absolutely. And they do snowball. How about you, Chris? So do you have, um, I'm going to ask you, do you have a style go for a start? If not, you should know. No, we do. And I mean, yeah, I think Allison and Joanne hit it on the head. I don't, I don't think I can opine any further. Everything they said is hundred percent. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you for that. Cause that's, that is important. And it's one of those things I think some people kind of forget is there, but it is so crucial, especially brand narrative. It's people do notice these things and it does erode trust if you've got typos and horrible fonts and comic sans and whatnot. Um, so, um, I have a question and this is going to be for everyone. And I know Joanne will have a different perspective on this, but you can speak to your, your clients perhaps. Um, I'm going to start with Chris. What's the most pressing comms issue that you deal with routinely? And this is from, um, Nellie Miles. Hello, Nellie, um, from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, Chris. So ours could be a little more unique than other agencies. One of the things I struggle with the most is trying to pull from our people all of the good things that they do every day. I mean, there are examples every single day that our deputies and our corrections officers and our, our professional staff that they do where we could highlight that and the public would love it. And, um, you know, there's just, I, I, I don't know if it's just law enforcement in general. I know some agencies uh, are have a very much... Uh, very much so easier time than than we do here getting their people to give them content but it can be like pulling teeth sometimes so what i do is i review reports i review body camera video um and if there are highlights that i feel a we can get some news time on and show the community what uh everything we're doing for them or worst case scenario get it out on social media and reach our audience directly I'll do that, but it certainly would be much, much easier if we had the buy-in from all of our staff. And it's it's a, it's a challenge for us. Interesting. And what about you, Joanne? Do you know of any sort of regular stuff that comes up? Yeah, the most common one now is how do we tell a compelling story online that captures the attention of audience and citizens on social media and, of course, mobile and short form video is driving the appetite and the attention and it's stopping the scroll. So that's an upskilling requirement in terms of moving from text or static images into like 60 second TikToks, reels or YouTube shorts. And that's the challenge, isn't it? Getting those and getting the volume, I guess, um, of that kind of, because yeah. everyone's attention span is like me right now. Um, I feel so how do you get that <laughs> and you need more time to do it because it's it's easier to repurpose a piece of copy as text and then have a graphic or record a graph and push it out there but to create video that takes more time and of course agencies are low on capacity and resources and um, but again having a process to do it and upskilling everyone on the team You'll get you'll get the bang back from from that investment in your book because attention is the currency when it comes to comms for you guys. Interesting. And I've actually on that, this is a question from me. Um, do you feel that as communicators we maybe have too high standards in terms of, oh, we can't put that out, it doesn't look good? Do you think people even notice? Like I know we're talking about star guides and people noticing that, but do you think people mind so much if you're just quickly grabbing something and not worrying too much about post uh, production and such like does that matter that's a great question and i was just having this conversation with another marketer earlier on today 
the re one of the reasons why TikTok is disrupting social media as we know it is that the aesthetic, the look and the feel is less than Instagram, but that makes it more believable. So you don't need to hire a camera crew. You know, the, the smartphone has everything that you need. And in fact, within TikTok or the Instagram Reels camera app, you have all the editing functionality. So again, that lesser production quality is a good enough standard. Yeah. But you should still have a style guide. Right. <laughs> and standard, you know, <laughs> maybe not below your expectations. So, Alison, how about you? What are your like constant struggles? So, I've everything Chris said, I agree with her. And so, you know, with 5,300 officers, it's hard for everybody to even keep up with that many officers who's doing the good work and everything. But kind of to your last question, I want to say, I think it depends on the community. What, what is already your stance in the community and how they are ready to receive the information? You know, for us, we live stream our own press conferences or sound bites at the scene and people look for that. They also look for our, you know, awareness campaigns in TikTok style since we are not allowed to have a TikTok, but we still do our TikTok videos that have won awards and that people really look for. So I think it really depends on the community and the rapport that you already have of how you're putting information out. I think for us, we still try to set that standard um, of our style guide and pushing that out. Um, but you know, in some, you know, mass casualty incidents, we don't have time to go through all of that, you know, sometimes. So I think it's really how the community perceives it and what you've already worked and built with the community of, of you know, how they feel. Mm. I'm interested, Alison, in terms of um, translation. Is it something you routinely do? So knowing the demographic where you are, um, maybe you could speak a little bit to that um, because as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, large Vietnamese population, um, Hispanic. How, how do you approach translating anything you put out? Is it a standard thing? Is it pick and choose depending on the incident? Uh, a little bit of both. So it is standard for us because the Hispanic population is the largest. So we always um, kind of, uh, we, we translate in Spanish, but in the city of Houston, we have to translate in 17 different languages. And so we have what we call our liaisons to those communities that usually speak the language. And um, if we need translations, we can count on someone in that community to help us translate. Or we have translation services, obviously, um, with the city. But that is a really big thing. And so sometimes, um, you know, during certain holidays or religious holidays and stuff, we do have to... Um, we do have to, you know, kind of put out a message uh, specific to that language. But yes, the Vietnamese population is huge here. We have regularly town hall meetings where we do have translators at all times. And one thing that I like that we do is, um, you know, it's one of the most diverse cities in the country. And we, we that's a that's a normal. But we have officers that that are that that represent the community that we serve. Um, and, and they're also in different ranks. So we have our front line, we have, you know, our executive chiefs, we have assistant chiefs that are all can help us in those different communities. So I think that that helps, but translation is a big thing. And also to our vulnerable populations as well, um, you know, our DFN communities. Um, so making sure that we use an alt text for everything that we do, that is something that that is huge for us. Um, but yes, those translations, we always translate like our videos. 
Amazing. Yeah, actually, uh, Houston reminds me of London in that sense of the diversity. And I remember regularly translating about 17, 18 languages for everything we did. It's pricey, but well, what cost is, you know, public safety and that that's the most important thing. So thank you. If I can answer John's question that just came across, our website does, you can translate it in every, um, any language that you need to, and also any of our emergency notifications, you could do that. And actually, I, I was looking into um, something, it's an AI translation that I'm going to share with people in a post at, at some point. I need to test it first. We'll see if it can understand me because I can't ever get through to any phones in this country. Um, but anyway, <laughs> that's, that's my struggle for today. Um, so I want to uh, move on to or come back to Patrick's question. So Patrick, I'm going to paraphrase um, what I think you're asking here. So um his agency um, enforces consumer protection laws, so um, and often expected to comment on legal policy. Um, I don't know who would be best to answer this one, so I'm just going to throw it open. But and I've had this lawyers in the room holding up every little word, and you've got media knocking on your door for updates, and you're just like, "Come on, guys, I need to get something out." How do you handle paralysis analysis uh, or? from from lawyers what what's your approach to getting them to just get it cleared so well oh go ahead Elsa. i was just gonna say what we do is uh when we when we send it for approval to the chief our lawyer is included in that and she really understands what the role of the pio is and our connections to the community of getting that information out um so she kind of understands that and then helping us to craft that message in a way because she understands, well, I know you have to get it out, but of course, as a lawyer, I want to keep it to the chest. But when the chief gets it, she gets it, and so does our legal team as well. They all get the message, and we know that we're at the race of time. So I think that's an important part, including them on the front end. Um, and so, you know, the chief really doesn't make a decision unless we hear from legal to just cover our bases, and they understand uh, the time, the time frame. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, Allison, I completely agree with you 100%, is, uh, especially if you've got that relationship form where they understand the importance of external communications, because, uh, Christine, you're absolutely right. Any lawyer is going to say, no, the less we say, the better about anything. And that's just not how external comms goes. And that's not what people are expecting from their government. They're expecting to know uh, what's important, what's important to them, um, and what their government is doing for them. Uh I will say I count my lucky stars every single day that I work for a sheriff who's an elected official and he reports directly to the people. Uh, we don't have counsel. We have to run things through. We will work with our state's attorney's office uh, and prosecutors uh, at times. However, um, we don't need their approval. And I'm lucky for that because there are a lot of times we will push information out that I know they're probably not comfortable with, but as the sheriff and elected official of the county, he wants to get it out there to the community. Um, at times when I do work with counsel on maybe it's a, a pending lawsuit or or something of that nature, you know, it's really just having those uh, conversations that, hey, this is really important. We disclose this. Here's why. Here's the consequences um, that we will face as an organization if we don't hear them out and try to come to some common ground because your odds are you're going to be on two completely different sides of the spectrum. So if you can meet in the middle when, when council does have to approve something, I would consider that to be a win. They all come and work for you. If there's no problem with the lawyers, um, any jobs, um, Joanne, have you got anything to add to that? 
Yeah, just a mutual respect. Um, the lawyer in the room is not the ultimate voice on this. You know, I'd be asking a lawyer, is it factually correct? Are we compromising any potential investigation? Um, is it defamatory? If not, let me work on the language. So the lawyer has to trust the communications professional mutual respect and, and push back as a comms professional. Oh, you have landed on my peak peeve right there. So this is my passion where it's going to come out. So for me, it is about that respect for comms people, but it seems to be missing in a lot of places and having that confidence to stand up for yourself, say, no, I do know what I'm talking about. I am a professional. This is my career. I know more than anyone in the room about, well, hopefully you do, uh, than this. And so I think what people seem to forget is that being a comms professional is not writing, it's not talking, it's being a politician, being able to negotiate, being able to recognize how people work, playing to that, understanding the motivation of everyone you work with and, and then, you know, weaving that into your personal strategy of how you're going to get your job done effectively without upsetting the world and his wife and I think it's so so important to feel empowered as a comms professional and I am going off on a rant this is not about me but it's very important to appreciate that you your worth and your value to the organization and to the public so thank you Joanne <laughs> put in a quarter and see me go so um yes thank you everyone and I've just got um sorry a side question on the uh guidelines in your style guide Alison do you have translation guidelines included in that yes we do great there you go thank you very much so um I'm just going to pause for a minute just to get, tell you to keep those questions coming because I've got some more um around well all sorts of things that we've we've brought up here so any more questions either put them in the Q&A or put them in the chat um we've got a little bit more time we've got like 20 minutes or so for taking questions um so Joan, i want to ask you um something so you have worked primarily and i know you've written a lot around police and social media i'd be really interested in if you could sort of talk to the differences you see between the us social um the use of social by law enforcement and uh the because you work a lot in europe um i understand yeah. so what what do you see as the two or all the differences and the similarities and what what do you see as a successful uh social strategy that's a really big question <laughs> we we can uh keep it <laughs> to less than an hour that'd be great so i would i would say that the challenges are universal and they cross geographic boundaries and they cross cultural boundaries the ultimate objective is trust, reputation, openness, and transparency, and being accountable because you act in public service. Um, I would say the approaches completely differ. And when I'm looking for best practice case studies, and over the last seven years of researching academia and writing and then in practice, what I found is that the US is ahead of the curve in terms of their confidence and their competency um, on social and that openness and that transparency. Um, and that I think is, I just think that that is, can I say it the American way that, you know, you have a style of openness and um, phenomenal communicators um, and a willingness to listen, but also to be heard. And I think that's maybe a cultural thing. 
in Europe, much more guarded, much more conservative, uh, much more about we will share what we want to share. And then the media maybe chip away so that they get more information. That's my experience. I think there's also a cautiousness that comes from a place of fear. It's fear-based communications and fear-based communications is not open communications, you know? Um, and I think social media has actually been one of the real challenges um, for many organizations across the world because they no longer control the narrative. The public step in and the public is like Joe, Joe, Joe Media. You know, they, citizen journalism is alive and well. And a, a European study a couple of years ago in the parliament said, Media is a commodity that is owned by anyone who is willing to create it. And I thought that was very powerful. So whoever is telling a story gets the attention. Um, but I have to say, I I really like the, the style and the openness that, that you guys um, are demonstrating in the US. So continue it. Thank you. I almost forgot that UK wasn't part of Europe anymore when you're talking about Europe. Um, <laughs> we've got a completely different approach to it. So, so yeah, thank you. And it, you're right. I mean, the confidence of, um, you know, people in the States is by far and away uh, uh, one of the best things I've kind of experienced since I lived here. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, just Patrick's come back. He's got a follow-up question on our last um subject about the lies he's asking um i i will ask uh i'm gonna ask allison um you've probably got most experience in this um have you got any tips on how to plead your case to lawyers and analysts when you need language to be less scholarly or more plain spoken or is that a you take it and you because i i consider myself to be a translator how do you approach that when you get a whole load of bumps like, oh no this is just awful so I just stress the importance that we have to communicate on a third grade level and having that relationship, building that relationship for the 95% time with the attorneys and letting them know, like, I get what you're, where you're coming from. I don't want your feelings to get hurt when I dumb this down for the general public per se, um, so that we can get that out. So basically it's, it's really relationship, I think, um, and them understanding that they have a job to do and then we have a job to do and it's the same goal to get the message across but we need to say it differently so that the general public can understand mm. and again it comes down to relationships doesn't it and um i'm not sure if it's exactly the same here but one thing that used to work for me is if i would explain reading ages to people so um you know the reading age of the sun for example is six years old the reading age of the times is 12 to 14 I think maybe 16 and if you can put it in those terms um we need to have a reading age of that's that can contextualize it I think um some people just will always speak in a way that they speak I I know um certain well like I've said before police officers speak in police speak because that's the culture um but equally government speak is um just awful worked in I worked in parliament myself and it's just like it's almost as if they're showing off and that's how it feels to people it's not accessible and being accessible is key so thank you um chris when when you um i mean you you are in a different sort of world in a way like you say you 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 have an elected official and what i'm interested in is um obviously that time is coming very soon um what preparation do you make 
um, or are you going to be making around election time? And how does that impact um, your comms? Because I know, and I'm speaking from sort of past experiences in the UK, we have a thing called PERDA, uh, basically means during a time of election, we cannot say 95% of what we want to say, which is great because you just do the filing and stuff like that. But what would you do? What would you advise in terms of comms strategy around elected or election time for, for what you do? Yeah, so while I work for an elected official, the the political side, uh, he keeps out of the office. So I'm I'm not on his political team. I don't message for him uh, on the political side of things. I'm responsible just for the communications on the internal side of our organization. So all organizational communications. You know, as far as what I would recommend if I was analyzing what somebody that's running for office uh, may want to say or do. You know, an incumbent should be able to run on their record and, and talk about uh, the highlights of their time in office, what they've done for the community, how they've been a voice for the community. Most importantly, how they've listened to the community. Um, you know, we all we all understand that uh, it's the community that elects them, puts them into these positions of of power and authority to uh, maybe keep the status quo, maybe to make uh, sweeping changes. I guess it depends on on the community itself. Um, so really capitalizing on what they've done and, and being out there with the community. And one thing which is awesome with my sheriff is he, this office isn't about him at all. Um, you know, he's, he's not a narcissist where the focus is around him. Uh, he rarely, in fact, wants to get in front of a camera. Uh, he wants to allow the communications team to handle the communications. And there's times where I have to say, Hey, sheriff, this is important. This is this is time for you to come up and make this announcement. It has to come from you as the leader of our organization. And of course, you know I've got a great relationship with him where he will um, he'll listen. And and not to go off on a tangent, but I, I I will say to everybody on this call something that's extremely important, and it it will it will decide if you're successful or not as a communicator. A public information officer, the lead communicator, needs a seat at the executive table. They have to be trusted by the CEO. Uh, they have to be there with all of the other C-level employees when decisions are made because it, whether or not the PIO is the driving force of a decision, there's going to be fallout one way or another, positive or negative. Uh, and that messaging component is critical um, in how people are going to perceive something that's announced. Maybe that does change the course of what was going to happen or what was going to take place, but they should always be willing to listen to their professional uh, that's in that PIO seat uh, to help gauge direct and if nothing else, how it's going to be messaged out. So I'm fortunate to have that. I know that, uh, you know, talking to different PIOs from across the country, that's a struggle a lot face. Um, and I encourage everybody, talk to your chief, talk to your director, talk, talk to your uh, sheriff, your your CEO of the organization and really explain how important it is that you have a voice at that table or you can't really do your job efficiently. Alison, do you, you have some tips? I wanted to ask, so for 10 years, I worked for a sheriff as well. So as an elected, you know, elected official and now moving to an appointed, um, what I want to kind of add, like Chris was spot on with that. But what I wanted to add is that, you know, we spend so much time being transparent as an overall department. And I would always tell um, when it was time for elections, when I worked for an elected official was that, um, this is no different. Just because you're running for office, this is what we already do. 
And so we have to continue to be transparent. Like if, if you know, like to Chris's point, it was the same. I was the one always on camera. The sheriff was never on. We have to continue because if they, they see that, oh, well, now the sheriff's on, on TV all of the time. Oh, it's election year. We didn't, you know, you have to kind of, again, know your community and what you and who you serve. But now moving to an appointed official, we still work for an elected official, which is the mayor. And while it is political season right now, it's still the same focus. We still have to be transparent. But what I will say is information that technically we wouldn't tell the chief or something. Now we're telling everything. We're oversharing information because it, it, it is our job to let them know the whole everything from the whole community standpoint. And especially because you're in a in political season and we know that everybody's political platform is what? Crime. So we have to make sure that we're prepared 360 and understanding that. So while it is different, and I wholeheartedly agree, Chris, you know, working for a sheriff, you don't answer to anybody. You kind of have free reign to do everything, but also working at for um, an appointed official who then in terms we work for elected by the mayor, we still have that kind of same obligation as well. Yeah, I think, I think you made both made points around the fact that it's not about the person, it's the agency, and that consistency is important. And um, oh, Joanne, I want to kind of follow on from that a little bit around um, change in leadership. Um, it happens, and it's it can be unsettling internally and externally. So um, can you touch upon some advice you would give around sort of managing a transition, or should it even be noticeable? Yeah, this is a great question and it's a really tricky scenario because every individual and leader will bring something different. They have their own personality, they have their own style, they have their own communications objectives. Some might be individualistic, some might be for the greater good, but it's really important and, and Alison has, has touched on this, is that you do comms and you do reputation management 24-7, 365 throughout the year. So I work with a policing representative organization here in Ireland. I've been doing their media and comms for almost 10 years and they change executive leaders, they change presidents. And when it comes to potentially personalities raising their heads, I reaffirm the media protocol, how we do our media and comms and we do refreshers on it. And then secondly, I say my job is to represent the reputation of this organization and the people that you represent, not you as an individual. And very quickly, it kind of uh, people are reminded that, yes, they're here for the greater good and not to be self-serving. It's, it's important to set out your stall, isn't it? And the cynic in me could always tell when someone was going for promotion because they started talking to me a bit more. Um, so <laughs> thank you all for that. Um, it's it's a challenging time, but I always used to really enjoy it, I think. Um, so we've got a couple more questions. Um, I'm going to... Nelly's asking, uh, what platforms are you all using um, the TikTok-style TikTok videos? Um, is it all of them or... Which, um, and actually, Joanne, you might be able to ask answer this one. Which do you feel the platforms are doing the... Sorry, I'm going to start again on that one. Which platforms are doing the best with them? Uh, so TikTok-style videos, which do you think are the best for them? Well, I mean, TikTok's engagement rate is outperforming any other social network right now. So you can expect to get between 5 and 10% engagement rate. Instagram is prioritizing reels. So if you make reels, that's going to outperform any other type of content. Engagement rates, potentially three to 5%. Facebook is also supporting reels. 
Um, but again, you might be hitting 2% engagement rate. And then YouTube Shorts have come into the mix um, and they're getting like 2 billion views every week. Um, but again, as we always say in comms, you go where your audience is. So don't jump into TikTok because it's a new shiny social network if your audience hasn't migrated there and they're still on Facebook, you know. Um, so they're all supporting them because they all want a bite of the social media pie um, and just get proficient on creating those videos and using the apps themselves. Right. Thank you. Alison, what do you use? Um, so we use all platforms, so LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, or X, I should say. It's not Twitter anymore. Um, so we use them all, but Twitter is kind of our bread and butter. So the media knows that we do a hashtag Q News, which is Houston News, and that, that they check that hashtag daily. They know when we're going out to scenes because we put, we're heading out to such and such. This is the pulling information. Um, check back here because this is where we'll we'll do our our briefings um and then you know for our tiktok style videos we push that on every platform that we have um but they're most successful on twitter on instagram we're reaching kind of the 20 year old age group as well now when we were able to have a tiktok of course it was kind of just everyone their facebook is obviously our older generation um that we do but our social media uh person he he's He's in his 20s himself, so he really can engage that audience. He's really done a good job with um, kind of catering to all of our audiences. Um, but we just we just push out all across the platforms. Oh, LinkedIn is more of our recruiting style TikTok videos and those type of things and our good feel good feature type stories. But I would say across the board, um, that was one of the things when I came that I wanted to change. I want them on all platforms because they were just using Twitter. And I was like, we can engage more because multiple people have multiple um, social media accounts across those platforms. So we want to be able to reach them. So, you know, for myself, I, I do not like social media for myself because it's, it's too consuming in the daytime job. Um, but I use it and I like the fact that I can pull up Facebook and I see our videos or I can pull up Twitter or I can pull up Instagram, LinkedIn, um, and X. And so I do like, I do, I do like, to see that because you want to reach the whole community however they're receiving their information so we don't want to miss it thank you and chris how about you what are you using yeah i probably the same as allison uh facebook twitter instagram um linkedin and next door are our biggest uh when when messaging directly to the community I, i've found that next door is awesome uh you get really ingrained with various neighborhoods you can message specifically to specific neighborhoods um and facebook uh, it, our following is pretty high as and again that's probably with our older generations if we're messaging to younger generations twitter uh is the big one instagram's the big one and the news as allison said they're all following our twitter accounts i mean that's often how they learn of breaking news if they're not learning it from a scanner group that's posting things they're learning of it of it directly from your organization because they're following your page or a specific hashtag. So yeah, we're on the same page with uh, Allison, I would say. Right. And um, Chris, I, I want to stick with you. Thank for all your answers on that. It was really interesting. Uh, Going to switch it up slightly. I've got a, a question for you specifically, Chris, from John Bobel. Um, he was asking, so after the dust has settled from the holiday parade incident, um, what are your top two or three takeaways for PIOs that are put into this type of situation, um, active aggressor or similar? 
It's a great question. Um, number one, having connections with other PIOs that can come to the scene and help and allocate you know, a week to 10 days to assist. If you've got a mass casualty incident, mass shooting incident, uh, you're you're going to be uh, front and center news for at least 10 days, and that's news across the nation. Um, so that's huge, having people that can come and help because you're going to have thousands of telephone calls, emails, voicemails coming in. There is no way one person can keep up with that. You need somebody that's going to run point on actually messaging the external message, somebody that's crafting the press releases and social media posts, somebody that's responding to all the inquiries coming in, and then double that. So I would say minimum six people on the ground that can dedicate their time for this. And you got to build in too and think about people need to go home and sleep and get some rest so they can function and think things through and message accurately. Um, so take all of that into consideration. You don't want to be fumbling around the day of a critical incident trying to figure out uh, who, who can I call for help? What am I supposed to do here? That's huge. Number two, getting timely information out is critical. Um, and understanding your primary, your primary audience is those directly impacted by the incident. Granted, the national stage, international audience is going to see, hear what's going on. They're not the primary focus. You want to focus on your community. That's who you work for. And, and so that said, um, you also want to consider making sure that your local beat reporters, your local news outlets that cover you every single day are taken care of. One of the things, once the dust settled with the actual critical incident itself, and we moved from that, that crisis communications into more long-term communications, all of our one-on-ones that we gave were with our local news media um, because they're with us always. They will always be with us. The national media, they'll come in, they're running a story based on the network. They've got an angle. I mean, they it's true. Um, not that they're reporting on, you know, they're not reporting miss facts or anything else, but the angle is slightly different. I think we all know that. Uh, and, and they're out. So you want to take care of your local news media because they're the ones that are going to be analyzing also everything about the incident, including uh, how the crisis communications occurred. So something to always consider is if your communications fail on day one, you're going to be the one that everybody's talking about on day three and beyond. So you want to go into it uh, confident, having a plan, and, and knowing your job is to message. And if anybody is trying to slow you down or say, hold up, we don't want to go out there and give an update, we don't have a whole lot of information, you have to push back and you have to say, hey, we might not have a ton of information to give. We need to go at least reiterate what people should be doing right now to keep themselves safe and answer the questions that we can answer because the community deserves that from us. Yeah, absolutely. That's so many good points there. And um, if anyone needs any um, uh, checklists for when you are in that kind of situation of what you need to do, because sometimes the, the the adrenaline and everything just, you know, reason goes out the window. Sometimes you need that strategy, you need that plan. And um, you can argue that the recovery period comms wise is just as important as during an incident, that recovery period is where you're getting that trust um, and making sure things that, you know, continue business as usual. And, um, you know, the uh, also I think the importance, and I'm I'm hoping you'll agree with me, Chris, of the, and Alison, around um, post-incident debriefs, um, after action, you know, meetings, crucial to have them as soon as possible, um, you know, that you get everything out, get the lessons learned and what have you. So um, I think that that is a, a key part of that. And um, I mean, 
that kind of intense incident that you had there, I think you you made a really good point on making sure you've got those fresh legs uh, that will run and run, pardon the pun, um, for, for a long time because it is a long time when something happens and it feels longer as well. So thank you very much. We haven't got much time and unfortunately I'm not going to be able to get to everyone's questions because we've only got three minutes left and I promised you all a minute. Um, to tell us something wonderful um i'm going to say something wonderful first of course uh you can get my book i've got in there before joanne uh the link is in the chat as well from my glamorous assistant greg and uh please join the community we love having the conversations going in and there so i just want to thank everyone everyone for for supporting pio toolkit from the bottom of my heart it's such a labor of love for me so i'm going to start in the top screen top of my screen with alison what's the thing you want to talk to us about um, so I just want to, you know, thank you all for the job that you do day in and day out. We don't get thanked enough for um, the jobs that we do. But one thing I do want to kind of push and leave with you is training is important no matter where you are in your career, but also check in on each other's mental health. Um, make sure that you are communicating all the time, not just when you see an incident happening, but check on each other. You know, in recent years, uh, since Hurricane Katrina, we've lost so many PIOs um, to suicide. And, you know, it's still like a taboo thing, but just make sure you're checking on each other and make sure that you continue your training. Know that I am always here if you need anything and don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you, Alison. Really, really important. There is actually a free presentation in our community on mental health and well-being where I speak quite openly about my challenges. And I've done that so that it can help you guys because that's incredibly important. So thank you for saying that, Alison. Chris, you've got some news. <laughs> yeah. So one thing I just want to say before I get into it, I totally agree with what Alison is saying. And and one thing, uh, be sure you make some PIO friends uh, in the profession, whether they be other law enforcement or government or private sector PIOs, because having a sounding board and somebody you can call just to bounce something off of is so invaluable. It is so very helpful. Uh, and, and Allison did touch on that. Um, so if you're in the Illinois area or really anywhere across the uh, the country and you're in government communications, uh, the Illinois Association of Chiefs of Police just formed a PIO section. Um, we just got off the ground and got running. We had our first meeting about three weeks ago. Uh, we're building it out. It's going to be awesome. Uh, statewide organization where we'll have at least one annual training. We're planning on having uh, uh, at least a bi-monthly meeting where we can get together, have a speaker talk about various topics. Right now, it's free to join. There might be like a $35, $40 fee moving forward, but um, we're hopeful to put on some great trainings here in Illinois. So if that'd be helpful for you or your organizations, you are welcome to apply. Just go to the Illinois Chiefs website. Uh, it's front and center. You could read about it and then throw in an application. Wonderful. Thank you, Chris. That's so good. I know you've been working on it and you've worked so hard. So awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, Joanne, link in the chat, please, for your book. And uh, what do you want to tell us? Well, listen, thank you all for your service. I mean, I, I'm not a... A PIO. I've always worked on the outside doing comms, but the reason that I'm so passionate about it is that we all have skin in the game. You know, when the shit hits the fan, excuse my language, you you want people in your corner, and you guys are. But yeah, I mean, I've got a book. It's based on 20 years of experience. It's the definitive guide to digital marketing and social media for government and public sector, and that includes a uh, policing. Um, and defense. And I've got a podcast, The Public Sector Marketing Show, and I'm always looking for guests. And so if you've got a great 
a calm story, any aspect of comms that you want to tell. I'm always looking for case studies. Um, so, you know, get in touch and I'd be happy to, you know, gift five copies of my book to some of the people that are in chat. So if you want to send me a DM on LinkedIn, give me your address. I'll post you a copy. And of course, I'll send the guests um, on the show a copy as well. No, and that's very generous and has put me to shame because I'm not going to offer to do that because I can't afford the postage. But thank you all. I mean, honestly, I top-notch bees knees business with you guys. I've really just thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. I want to thank everyone who came along. I hope that you got stuff out of this. I certainly did. It just reignited my passion once more for all things comms. And I can't wait to see all of you whenever I'm wherever you are. Uh those of you at NIOA, I'll see you there with my book. Uh, Alison's going to be there. Chris, are you going to be at NIOA? Oh, boom. I'll miss you. All right. Well, we'll come to you next time. Joanne, when I next come to London, I will probably stop by, come try and see you. If anyone's going to be in Vegas in November, I'm going to be there seeing Kylie Minogue, but that's another story. I've got tickets. Sweet. Anyway, that's for Joanne's. Uh, <laughs> but thanks again so much. Get in touch. You need anything, come to me. Uh, we'll work it all out. So again, thanks everyone. Really, really appreciate it. We'll see. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.